Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Each month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in Genocide Studies. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome John Paul Himka and Joanna Beata Michlich to the show. They are the editors of the excellent new volume titled Bringing the Dark Past to Light, The Reception of the Holocaust in Post-Communist Europe, published by University of Nebraska Press. The book is a comprehensive survey of the way in which the countries of Eastern Europe have understood and remembered, or failed to, the Holocaust. John Paul and Joanna are working within a well, if recently established, field of memory studies, but they bring the questions and tools of the field to bear on a region in Europe that has often been passed over that part of Eastern Europe that was under communist control before and or shortly after World War II. The study that results offers some fascinating insights. And here I have to say parenthetically, I introduced this book as as a comprehensive survey, sometimes that is code for not very exciting. In this case, that's not at all true. The book is well-written and stimulating, um, and the ideas are really interesting. And I'm thrilled to be able to talk with them about the book today. So, with that, John Paul and Joanna, thanks for being with us on New Books and Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for inviting us. So let's Next start. Question. Yeah, let's start, um, and I'll ask John Paul to start. Um, John Paul, why don't you take just a moment and tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in these issues? Well, I'm um, a historian of Eastern Europe, and particularly of Ukraine, and I'm, in fact, of Ukrainian ethnic origin. I was, uh, and I've worked on various topics over my academic career, uh, 19th century, Habsburg, Galicia, uh, where a lot of Ukrainians live. I've written a book on, actually two, on Last Judgment Iconography, various things on religion. And, uh, but for a long time, I, I, I also, in a sort of dilettantish way, uh, began to collect material on Ukrainians in the Holocaust. Hmm. And what sort of me was totally different versions of what happened uh, that, that uh, circulated in the Jewish community on one hand in Canada and on the other hand in the Ukrainian community. Uh, one, uh, re- remembering Ukrainians have done all kinds of things during the Holocaust and the other remembering the total innocence of Ukrainians and, and in fact wondering about whether the Jews were pro-communists. And this, this uh, kind of dichotomy of thinking eventually led me to a situation where I began to uh, try to settle the issue for myself about what happened. And then I wouldn't write about it for a long time until, um, because I thought it's an issue that's not really important. It concerns Ukrainians in Canada. It doesn't really concern anyone else. Um, but then when Ukraine became independent and then when it took a more nationalist direction, I realized that this was not some kind of... Uh, a personal issue to figure out that it was in fact a larger issue and, and that other people were figuring out uh, the neighbors came out in Poland was in a big debate and, and I began to, to talk about these things at conferences ran into Joanna and the rest is uh, history in both senses Joanna I'm going to ask you the same question and I should pause just a moment and, and tell the listeners that Joanna is um, being very generous with her time today she has a cold and so her voice probably sounds a little bit different than it ordinarily does um, so Joanna why don't, why don't if you don't mind answer the same question how did, how did you become interested in, in the subject uh, sure so um, to start I'm uh, like John Paul 
I'm a social and cultural historian of European Jewish history, and the subject that has been a, a part of my historical inquiry for a very long time uh, is the attitudes of Poles towards the Jews. So I'm also very much interested in the way how especially the neg negative attitudes towards Jews impacted the Jewish community itself. And uh, I, when I began to be interested in, in this particular subject of the memory of the dark past that doesn't pass away, in Poland, at the, uh, this was actually perhaps a trigger and a reason why I wanted to pursue the subject to a different level. I'm sure that many uh, members of uh, your audience have heard about the very slim, very slim book uh, written by Jan Thomas Gross, Neighbors, that uh, triggered in Poland, the longest lasting and the most emotional debate on any political, historical topics in the post-1945 period. And uh, soon after the debate began, in 2000, I was asked to conduct uh, an an analysis of all the parties uh, involved in this debate. And as I was working on this particular debate, I was also looking at other cases beyond Eastern Europe to seek similarities and also differences between Poland and other countries in Europe in relation to the history of the Jews, the mistreatment of the Jews uh, during the Second World War, during the Holocaust. And um, for me, the discovery of the whole aspects of the repressed past, silence, the silences, and the way this dark past has been coming to the light or hasn't been coming to the light, is still very much part of uh, my interest, research interest. But I was very fortunate to meet John Paul in one of, uh, I think, Lessons and Legacies conference. So we met under the uh, warm sun in California, and we began to think about a book that would actually focus on similarities and differences in relation to the dark past, uh, the, the Holocaust, the memories of the Holocaust in the entire Eastern Europe. Talk about this, this concept of the dark past. Um, can you say, Joanna, a little bit more about why you chose that for the title of the book and what exactly that means? We... we uh, we discussed the title, as I recall, for a while, but the dark past is that past, is that past that reflects negatively on the collective, on the nations uh, in which myths the Jewish communities lived, uh, thrived before the Second World War, and in which myths they, they were 
killed with the collaborations of the locals. So uh, the dark past is self-explanatory term. We also use uh, the term of a difficult or challenging past uh, in uh, in our book or in other publications. But this is also the past that doesn't want to go away. This is the past this is very, which is very much part of the present and the politics of memory uh, in the region. And of course, uh, when it comes to the manifestation of that dark past, uh, there are particular uh, manifestations in each of the countries that uh, uh, were analyzed in our book. And, um, and I think it is important to keep in mind, especially with what's happening now in Ukraine, and I'm sure uh, John Paul will uh, be able to say much more than me as an expert in the field that this, com- this continuation of the dark past manifests itself in mer- many different ways and with very different aims and goals also. So, so John Paul, um, you want to use that phrase politics of memory, and that's a a very familiar phrase to historians, but for some of our audience who are maybe not professional historians, that may be a new phrase. Can you you say just a little bit, and you actually introduced uh, the book, it's not the epigraph, but very close to the beginning of the book, you quote Henry, um, and I don't know if this pronunciation is right, forgive me if it's not, but Rousseau, uh, the French scholar of memory, who writes, memory has become a value reflecting the spirit of our time. Um, could you talk just a little bit about how it has happened that, that historians have turned over the past decade or two to the study of, of memory and the history of memory, and why why you think it's so important? I think they, they turned to it as part of what was called the linguistic turn or postmodernism and the understanding that nationalisms and a lot of uh, identities were, in fact, constructed um, that they weren't innate, they weren't essential, but but they were something that um, was the result of programs and projects. So I think that was what sparked the initial academic interest in it. And then rediscovered were the works of the uh, French sociologist um, Maurice Albox, who wrote precisely about what is collective memory. But uh, in our own age, we see a lot of deliberate uh, shaping of social memory, not only by boards of education, but by institutes uh, specifically devoted to describing and formulating the national memory. So there are institutes of national memory uh, in Ukraine and in uh, Poland and in Slovakia, and these places try to say, well, this is what it means to be Polish, or this is what we have suffered usually, um, and uh, and then these uh, uh, filter into educational programs, uh, sometimes outside the school system, uh, very much, uh, you can see the politics of memory involved in Putin's Russia, where uh, it's actually a felony to say anything bad about the Red Army during World War II, so that the uh, memory of the World War is kept sacrosanct. Uh, 
so that this is becoming more and more a part of, I think, world politics, or more, we're more conscious of it, because, in fact, if you look at uh, uh, some of the Palestinian and Israeli conflict, that, too, is about what happened. Uh, and, and each of them tells the story of their situation, how they got to where they are, and the memory is totally different. So uh, I think we, what's happening is we're more conscious of the formulation of the idea uh, of, of uh, who a particular group is, uh, it's that, that that particular group doesn't just inchoately uh, emit some kind of vision of itself, but in fact there are people who are shaping visions and, uh, and experiences which are shaping visions of, of, of identity and uh, belonging. So, right, John Paul, then I think it's fair to say that, that this this focus on the way in which the Holocaust has been remembered and, and, and politically constructed was probably first, uh, historians and, and others concentrated first on, on countries in the West about this. I think that's fair to say. Um, does that mean that the way in which the West memorialized and remembered the Holocaust has become some kind of template or measuring stick for comparison? Was was this an issue for you when you tried to think about Eastern Europe and remembering the Holocaust? I'm just wondering to what extent that, that's an issue. Yeah, it's a major issue. It's a major issue because uh, America and the West uh, were thinking about the Holocaust, uh, although they themselves hadn't directly on their territories experienced uh, oh, many of them, at least, like America, certainly had no, no experience of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. um, and um, and it was very easy to work out uh, a high moral ground on that issue, uh, particularly because America had fought on uh, against against the Nazis from 1941 on, and um, and uh, there was. Losing my track of thought here, um, so so it could be done in this kind of a vacuum. Uh, plus, uh, Jewish refugees and survivors of the Holocaust moved to places like America, particularly America and Britain as well, and and they kept alive their memory. At first in the family, at first in local communities, and then more and more in the public eye. While in uh, uh, Eastern Europe, the Jews had been, well, to a great extent, uh, murdered or expelled. Uh, in Poland, at one point, there were only a couple thousand Jews left in the country. Uh, so they weren't keeping that memory alive and certainly not bringing it into public space. They were a vulnerable minority. So in the West, before the fall of communism, which was absolutely silent on the issue, uh, people developed movies, thoughts, uh, about the Holocaust, which may, which in fact were not entirely appropriate when it came to Eastern Europe, or at least not very digestible when it came to Eastern Europe. We think of it as a moral touchstone. Eastern Europe did not like to think of it as a moral touchstone. So uh, this this uh, division, uh, this this uh, development of the Holocaust as the uh, most important event that occurred in the West uh, was very hard to accept in Eastern Europe. I think the hardest, if I might yeah. to inject Please. something here at this point, I think, of course, the hardest part for the Eastern Europeans 
to accept is the notion uh, that the Holocaust is the central event in the 20th century, uh, the central event in the history of the Second World War. And, of course, when we actually look at the development of memories of the Holocaust in both Western and Eastern Europe, we can also uh, see some parallels, the suppression, um, the negligence of the uh, memories of the Holocaust and the local collaborators in France, for example, has been going on for a while uh, in France, mm-hmm. too. So uh, the same issue, I think, goes for countries such as Netherlands or Belgium. Uh, each of the countries have its own dark past in relation to the Jews. But because of the uh, different political environment in which actually this difficult narratives of the dark past could have emerged earlier than in Eastern Europe. So these notions on this, the debate about the dark past in, the, in Western Europe, in some of these countries, are much more advanced. And, of course, we have to keep in mind that each of the countries have its own dark past. And yet, when I, for example, read the responses uh, to Mark, to the American historian uh, Paxton, who was the trigger, the main historian, the vector of memory, who was digging into the difficult French past, the Vichy past, uh, the negative responses in some ways reminded me uh, of the negative critical responses to Jan Thomas Gross. Uh, on the part of the right-wing conservative Catholic circles in Poland. Uh, he, he, of course, the differences between the two was that Paxton was an American, whereas Jan Thomas Gross was also a Pole uh, who lived outside uh, the country. And yet the key accusation was that these people, these individuals, in both cases, they don't, not, they don't know anything and uh, professionally because of their uh, education, etc., etc., they are not capable of understanding and portraying the right history. So they are uh, committing uh, some kind of a crime against the, uh, in case of Paxton, French nation, the, the, and in case of Jan Gross, um, Polish nation, Polish national past. Yeah, let's let's talk about Poland for for a minute as a, as a case study. And for those listeners uh, who may not have made the connection, Jan Gross is the author of the book Neighbors, which which each of uh, both both John Paul and, and Joanna referenced at the beginning is influential in their thinking about this. Um, and so let's talk about neighbors, but, but to set up the context, how do the Poles understand, and, and probably this is directed to Joanna, how, how do people in Poland think about the Holocaust during the period in which Poland was communist? 
case of Poland, and that's also the case of other countries that mm-hmm. our contributors to the book uh, analyze so superbly. What you see that in case of uh, Poland and other communist countries, the key narrative uh, about the Second World War uh, that developed during communist period was about our own suffering, our own martyrdom. And this was subsumed under the communist uh, narrative of the anti-fascist uh, fighting the fascists and all the victims uh, were the victims of fascism. And uh, the Holocaust, the genocide of Jews, was not actually acknowledged for its specificity. And in the case of Poland, of course, during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, the key narrative was about the uh, six million Poles who were killed in the Second World War. Uh, this, uh, and of course, the Polish Jews, the three million of Polish Jews, were part of that narrative without actually staying stating that there were Polish Jews, that there were Polish citizens, and, and of course, any discussions of the dark past, that many of the citizens were also targeted and mistreated by its own, by members of Polish community, were out of the question for discussion at the time. Of course, in uh, 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 by the late 1960s, when Polish communism, uh, the Polish socialist state, became more and more nationalistic uh, because of the change of the political elite, uh, the Mochar group, the partisans, uh, when they took over, this narrative of, uh, this key narrative of the Polish suffering of the, uh, became tinted also with uh, anti-Semitic uh, pronunciations, because sadly uh, there was also realization that the West does not accept that narrative, that this, sure. the West recognizes it as, as a false. And as in the West, um, so, some of the accounts of uh, the Polish mistreatment uh, became more pronounced in the public. This is not to say that they were historically correct uh, either, but this is perhaps a subject for another conversation. And uh, uh, what happened as a result of that kind of dichotomy of uh, uh, that the Poles are the bad guys. This was the key, the, uh, the key narrative uh, that was formulated in the West, whereas the Poles in Poland perceived themselves first and foremost as the good guys. With the uh, <clears throat> developments of the late 1960s that also uh, <clears throat> resulted in the communist uh, purge of Polish Jews uh, 
from from the Communist Party, we also observe another layer uh, coming, another uh, another narrative coming to that that actually uh, that the Polish Jews, sadly those survivors, were ungrateful. We Poles were, were the good guys. We uh, solidarized. We were in solidarity with all the suffering Jews in Poland, and not only that. We, as the majority, offered them uh, help. Uh, we were the rescuers as a collective. And these ungrateful Jews in the West are telling a totally different story. Huh. And, of course, this kind of narratives, they still promulgate. Uh, they are still present in right-wing uh, conservative Catholic discourse, in right-wing uh, conservative uh, writings also done by historians who see themselves as the guardians of the national uh, memory, understood as uh, also as a memory that cannot be offended. Anything that one... Uh, any event that uh, portrayed the collective in a dark way as a collective responsible for any wrongdoings to others is treated as an offense. And uh, as a result, um, within this group of uh, historians, pundits, and journalists, the dark past, even today, is not acceptable. So historians such as Jan Gross and Polish historians, there is a group of young, youngish Polish historians in Poland who have created a new history writing with regards to the Holocaust, critical history writing, which in the past did not exist in Poland and also in other uh, Ethiopian countries. I would say that in the case of the Ukraine, this critical history writing uh, uh, is, in Ukraine is conducted on a very small, uh, minute level, but outside uh, in Canada, uh, historians such as my colleague John Paul are major contributors to, um, uh, to that critical history writing. Uh, his, uh, th those historians who are members of this critical history writings are involved in a very important process of uh, archaeology of the dark past, digging out of that past. Because uh, in spite of the fact that we assume that we know everything about the Holocaust, uh, in, uh, when it comes to the Holocaust in Eastern Europe and the killing fields of Eastern Europe and the issues of local violence as well as local rescue activities, the, com the complex relationship between uh, various groups of eyewitnesses and, and Jews, and uh, there is much more to do for us as historians. So let me... Um let me follow up on that a little bit. Um, yeah, just as so, you use this term of renewal uh, as part of your analysis, and, and you refer, I think, to that as the process of historians kind of excavating a more 
truthful understanding of the past and bringing that to light. Um, how does that happen? You talk about small groups of historians. What kind of institute is there? In, are there institutions that are associated with this? How what's what's the kind of social structure of renewal? Or is there one? Renewal is there for sure. And of course, this renewal is also a complex process. And we can actually look at the beginning of the renewal in Poland to the time of the solidarity, of the emergence of the first solidarity movement. And among that uh, solidarity movement, there were literary scholars, poets, writers, not necessarily historians, who were urging that out of social, political, and moral necessities, we Poles have to actually look back at our past and acknowledge that we were not only victims, we were not solely victims in, uh, in the Second World War, but also we were responsible for mistreatment uh, of Jews. There are some aspects of the history that we don't want to look at, and we have to, in order to become a fully democratic nation, in order to become a member of the community of European nations. So out of political, social, ethical, moral necessities, this process began. And um, uh, the great contribution to that uh, process uh, was uh, uh, done with, uh, uh, lies with, uh, not only with historians. Uh, Mm -hmm. So there is a wide group of individuals and milieu, uh, uh, sociologists, anthropologists, literary scholars, the renewal process, if we talk about the crystallization of that renewal process, somehow we should also trace it in the cultural factors of memory, in poetry, in films. Uh, And that process began uh, earlier during the dark years of communism, where any discourse on the Holocaust the dark past was not permitted. So we know of uh, films and uh, uh, that were produced before 1968 uh, that uh, dealt with difficult uh, issues. Of uh, one of the darkest aspects is the in Pol- as Polish history is concerned is the indifference and hostility towards uh, Jewish fugitives during the Second uh, World War, during the Holocaust. And there were numbers of films that dealt with that uh, process, and yet they were not aired till the late 1990s. They, they were made. So that crystal, we have to keep that in mind, that, uh, we, uh, that there, were, uh, there were some triggers of the renewal uh, earlier, but they could not actually, the renewal could not have happened uh, under uh, communist regime. Only uh, once the, commu- uh, the communist regime was gone, that process of renewal uh, could have begun. 
and the renewal is actually taking place. It is a dynamic process. It is not a static process. We are we uh, with with John Paul. We actually talk about two key stages. At the beginning, and Poland, of course, is that forerunner of that renewal process. If we look at the entire Eastern Europe, and when it comes to the debates about the dark past, I think it is the country in which those debates have been carried out for uh, quite a long time now, for almost uh, two decades. They are extensive. We can observe the boom in the memory of the Jews in on different uh, levels. Uh, we observe a continuity of the engagement with the dark past uh, on uh, the part of historians who are still right, uh, conducting important research on lo- pertaining to the local histories, local uh, regional histories, which are very important. Um, the engagement of uh, filmmakers, I'm sure Ida is one of uh, those films that uh, might be known to the American audience uh, about the difficulties of uh, uh, being a Jew uh, in post-communist Poland, uh, going back to the, taking us to the Second World War and the treatment of Jewish child survivors who, after the Second World War, emerged not knowing who they were and who had uh, who were not returned to the Jewish community. Uh, so this process of renewal is a uh, is a continuation. Uh, after uh, the end of communism, we can in Poland we can see that the first decade it was a time where the renewal was still trying to establish itself, and it, uh, and it was fighting with the old narratives that of course have become modified in the process that did not allow they were uh, uh, we can call them self defenses uh, uh, they, uh, they were very negative, hostile to the arrival of the Holocaust with all its aspects uh, of the dark past in Poland. Uh, from the 2000 up to the present, so from the Yedwabne debate, and in some ways we can actually talk about Poland today as post-Yedwabne Poland, as far as the debates, various debates about the dark past in relations to, to the Jews continue, we see that this renewal process uh, has been established as a mainstream uh, process. Um, uh, there is a great support on the part of current uh, uh, government uh, members of cultural elites, political elites, uh, provide various forums, so conferences, international conferences, local conferences. Uh, there is a engagement also on an international scale. Um, uh, historians from abroad, uh, from America, Israel, are very much part of the uh, writing history, talking about the history of Polish Jews 
in in Poland, the Museum of Polish Jews is part of that, for example, part of that process. Uh, so uh, the renewal process has established itself much more. But this process uh, still continues. We should not think about that renewal as a completed process, uh, that everything uh, that had to be achieved uh, in terms of digging out uh, the dark past and integrating that the dark past into national history, into uh, national memories, uh, has not been achieved yet. Because one stage is, the, is to get to know that past. And the next stage, what do you do with that past? And the issue of integration of that past into national history and national memory is the crucial one. And Poland seems more advanced, once again, in that second stage than other East European countries. So that's actually, that, that's, thank you, that's a perfect lead-in, because John Paul, um, if Poland is more advanced, at least reading your essay, it strikes, it seems to me that Ukraine, the Ukraine is, is less advanced than many countries in this. Um, what, what is, how do Ukrainians remember the Holocaust, and, and how do, how, why do they do so in the way they do? Well, the, the, the problem is that uh, uh, the main Ukrainian perpetrators of the Holocaust, which was the organization of Ukrainian nationalists and their uh, armed forces, the Ukrainian insurgent army, are also considered national heroes. Yeah by uh, Ukrainian uh, nationalists and, and by many patriotic Ukrainians, and I would say by most of those who identify themselves right now uh, in Ukraine as Ukrainian. Uh, now, of course, it was the Germans who were the driving force and the main, opera, the main um, uh, 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 personnel that actually killed the Jews in Ukraine. But the organization of Ukrainian nationalists were involved very heavily in the pogroms that occurred in the uh, summer of 1941. Then they uh, infiltrated the police, uh, the German police, and uh, in that capacity helped with the murder of uh, hundreds of thousands of Jews, really, uh, although the Germans did most of the shooting. And, uh, and then the Ukrainian insurgent army, even when it was revolt against the Germans later after 19, in mid-1943, uh, systematically uh, uh, killed Jews as the Red Army approached. So, um, and this entire history is, is denied by uh, most uh, Ukrainians, even though it's, it's, I think any scholar would see that uh, the, the matters here are constituting controvertible uh, facts. Uh-huh. So, um, the Ukraine is a divided country, and it has been a divided country for a while. Uh, ever since in, in independence, uh, 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 well, actually for a long time, it has been, it has been divided in its attitudes. The West has been uh, more nationalistic, and the East uh, has been more open to, let's say, Russian culture. Uh, in elections in Ukraine... Generally speaking, in the past, uh, they, they were they were highly contested, and they're sort of like American elections in the sense that there were 
totally opposed views, and you could and 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 the country was split between between let's say not Republicans and Democrats, but really between two separate identity projects. One is sort of Western Ukrainian identity project, it was Ukrainian language, Ukrainian ethnicity, or and the uh, nationalists, including the wartime nationalists, were the main sort of uh, heroes. And then another group uh, that was uh, like Russian-speaking, uh, more, more not an exclusivist kind of nationalism at all, uh, and looked at the Red Army as the major uh, heroes of the war. Uh, neither side likes to talk much about the Holocaust to begin with, but the the, the Westerners uh, in particular uh, don't like this uh, theme. Um, so, uh, and and at different elections, one side or the other would would capture the parliament and the presidents. So, for uh, in 2005, after the Orange Revolution, uh, President Viktor Yushchenko, who was in power for five years represented the nationalist point of view, emphasized Ukrainian victimization uh, during the communist period, the Great Famine, in which uh, millions of people died in 1932-33, and at the same time glorified the organization of Ukrainian nationalists and the Ukrainian insurgent army. Uh, founded an institute of national memory that... Uh, uh, Precisely promoted the uh, memory of the famine, which they called the Hall of the Mor, and uh, and glorified the uh, nationalist uh, forces during World War II. Then they were booted out of office uh, in the next election, and from 2005 until uh, I mean from 2010 until the events of the of the Maidan uh, recently, like a year ago. Um, the opposite side uh, took control, and they uh, replaced the head of the Institute of National Memory with somebody who was going to glorify, uh, you know, the, the Red Army during the Second World War. Uh, they uh, put certain, you know, they um, uh, didn't promote as much, didn't promote at all the study of the famine. And then, in, tw- in uh, a, a year ago, in February. Uh, uh, the uh, forces of the West uh, overthrew the uh, government uh, uh, that had been more pro-Russian and uh, and uh, put in a real hegemony of this sort of nationalist vision of Ukraine. Now, it doesn't mean that they themselves are, uh, let's say, anti-Semitic or anything like that. Uh, they managed to get a lot of Jewish support for the Ukrainian movement in Ukraine and for the Ukrainian forces in the current war. But um, they nonetheless, they put at the centerpiece of their historical memory these nationalists who were Holocaust perpetrators. So in this situation, it is almost impossible to pry open a space where you can be discussing uh, the, the dark past within Ukraine. A great resistance to believing that they could have done anything wrong during the Second World War. They were the victims, um, and they, um, they uh, feel that anybody who speaks about uh, the, the, the nationalist uh, involvement in the Holocaust or their links with Nazi Germany, that these people are essentially Russian Asian. And Russia 
promotes the vision that the that these that the current Ukrainian government, which was a result of the uh, overthrow of the previous government after the uh, demonstrations in uh, in Kiev, um, the Russians claim that this is just a fascist junta that took power, and they say, well, these are the same people we fought in the Second World War. Uh, they look, they say, well, they have the red and black flag of the Ukrainian nationalists. They have pictures of the leader of the Ukrainian nationalists, Stefan Bandera. They greet each other with the slogan used by the nationalists, which was, glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes. Uh, they revive the uh, uh, other slogans of the nationalist past. They glorify the uh, the, the nationalist past. Uh, and now that that Putin has taken Crimea and is uh, um, fomenting or arming the rebellion in eastern Ukraine, it, it's impossible to uh, to raise these issues. There's no space at all. Uh, ideas are totally polarized. War, you know, they say war, the first casualty in war is the truth, and we see that every day when we study war. But uh, it has certainly also been a casualty for any kind of internal discussion or uh, uh, possibility that one could have such a complex uh, nation that, in fact, uh, included Holocaust perpetrators in it. You know, it's it's uh, a very difficult situation. Right after the Orange Revolution, there was hopes uh, uh, that perhaps this was the time one could be discussing these issues, and there's very important debates broke out in uh, in, in the major one of the major intellectual forum forums of Ukraine, the, the journal uh, newspaper Kritika. Uh, but since then, it has been a retrenchment, 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 and now the. Um, the uh, Minister of Education in Ukraine is, in fact, a, a nationalist and a uh, person who uh, has consistently defended uh, the nationalists and attacked the people who have ever criticized them. Uh, the in, head of the Institute of National Memory is a fellow who rose to uh, prominence precisely through uh, glorifying the organization of Ukrainian nationalists and denying any of its crimes against the Jewish or Polish population. And uh, the, the head of the security forces is a guy who also uh, 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 was involved in um, um, putting on press conferences uh, back in the, in the uh, days when the, when the uh, nationalists had more power when, when President Houston co president after the Orange Revolution. Um, the head of the security forces had special um, hearings where they tried to clear the nationalists of any involvement in pogroms using deceptions, deceptive uh, uh, documentation to do so. So the guy who was in head back then who, who uh, put out deceptive uh, documentation to uh, justify the nationalists in the Second World War and deny their crimes, and who also put out... Uh, 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 a list of the perpetrators of the Great Famine, the whole of the more, and, uh, and the list of perpetrators just happened to be 40% Jewish. Well, he's back at the head of the security uh, uh, organization in Ukraine today, the security services. So in this environment, and, and, and the Minister of Education wants to have a, a patriotic uh, um, 
education program, which is going to put pride of place also to the organization of Ukrainian nationalists and the uh, Ukrainian insurgent army. So as I say, at this juncture, with this war going on and with the uh, uh, seizure of power by, by, by people who are, who are uh, very strongly identified with the nationalist cause, uh, it, is, it is not possible, I believe, to have any kind of uh, intelligent dialogue about these issues. So uh, certainly in my case, I'm just going to confine myself to doing my scholarly research on these topics because there's no, there's no speaking uh, to Ukrainian society at this moment. Huh. Well, so, so in some sense, we've got the, the ends of the spectrum, and we clearly can't devote equal time to all of the essays in, in the book, and I just suggest to listeners that they're all very interesting, and it's well worth picking up the book uh, and looking at it and reading it. Um, but I would like to ask you um, about some general kind of themes and conclusions. And I'll start out um, with one of the points that that Omer Bartoff makes in his conclusion. Uh, and, and John Paul, if you could address that, this next question first, and then maybe Johanna could could jump in. Uh, he points out that the memory of the Holocaust is often used instrumentally in Eastern Europe. Um, how might Eastern Europeans try and use, or how do Eastern Europeans, some Eastern Europeans, not all, use the memory of the Holocaust as a way to get or to to um, to achieve other kinds of goals? Well, the classic example is. Uh uh, particularly during the wars of the Yugoslav succession, that is after when the collapse of Yugoslavia in the 1990s, the Serbians would uh, point to the Croats and say they were fascists during World War II. They had the camp at Yasenovac where they killed Serbs and Jews. Serbs and Jews are sort of the same kind of people. We've been victims of history. We have a lot of solidarity. Serbs are innocent to the Holocaust, and the Croatians committed it. So that's a, that's a classic case where you you say your neighbor did it, I didn't do it. And the neighbor just happens to be your enemy in 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 a conflict. So I, I would say that's uh, uh, that's a way to that's how it's instrumentalized the most. But instrumentalization of the Holocaust uh, is is also something that Israel does. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, and uh, in addition to, to instrumental instrumentalization of the, of, the, of the Holocaust, there is also uh, using the Holocaust to, to show how good you are. So, like the, the Albanians uh, um, stand out, they say, because they did not uh, uh, kill their Jews. So they 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 say they were pretty decent folks. Um, the the Czechs point to the Slovaks and say, well, they were the ones who had a fascist state. We were in resistance. So these are maybe not so obviously instrumentalized, but they're they're matters of reputation. Uh, and if you talk, for instance, I you know I, I talked about the Ukrainian situation where people are unwilling to believe that uh, that that the things happened which happened, or they're unwilling to admit it. Uh, I talk to people and say, "Well, the Ukrainian police did this, that, and the other thing," and uh, or I would I'll read, and somebody will say, "Well, what kind of Ukrainian police were these?" 
the Ukrainian police was actually made up of Poles and Russians and others, not Ukrainian police, not Ukrainians. But, you know, I have the documentation which shows very clearly that uh, that, that uh, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists went into the police, tried to keep it a, an ethically pure uh, 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 nation. So this idea that you can take the Holocaust and say, well, we didn't do it, it was somebody else, uh, it was... Um, Polish policemen from Silesia who are actually doing this, not us, not us. And uh, and uh, uh, I, I would say that 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 this kind of uh, playing has only become important since the Holocaust has been brought up after the collapse of communism. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, Ioana wants to add something to that. Uh, well, John Paul discussed uh, two key aspects of this instrumentalization of the Holocaust, and you can see that actually they have two different purposes. Because in the case of Ukraine, uh, in the case of uh, Serbia or Croatia during the Yugoslavian wars of 1992-1995, the Holocaust was used uh, in order to... Uh, accuse the other guy of wrongdoing um, to show the current political means. We are the good guys. Look, these guys uh, are like the Nazis, and they also did something to the Jews, whereas we were the saviors of the Jews. In the case of Albania, or in the case of Bulgaria, uh, the instrumentalization of the Holocaust goes the other direction. The purpose is to show uh, each of these countries in a good light. And the reasoning is we, we were the rescuers. So for that reason, we are like you. We can be part of the European community of nations. Uh, we are as democratic as you. So uh, the, uh, one should uh, analyze these instrumentalizations, the different reasonings, the underpinnings, very carefully, uh, because only through this very careful analysis we can understand fully how the past is being used, uh, the purpose of gaining um, some tangible uh, uh, goals uh, on an international level, very often that's on international level and also national level. Um, another aspect of in- instrumentalization that we observe uh, throughout Eastern Europe uh, of the Holocaust, and this takes us uh, also to another aspect of that uh, battle between the Holocaust and the Red Holocaust, because that's the key also narrative that emerged after the end of communism uh, in Eastern Europe. We, we all Eastern Europeans, we were the victims of the communist system. And no one wants to know about the Red Holocaust, the Gulag memory that we have, that we have suffered. And in relations to the Holocaust, there is a very sinister use of, uh, uh, of it in arguing that we actually suffer uh, much more and for much longer uh, than the Jews. And 
in case of the Jews, uh, there are key aspects, to, of course, to this uh, this narrative about uh, that actually could also be called a competition over suffering, martyrdom, which is one of the key patterns. But it uh, it this narrative is tinted with anti-Semitism, and one of its layers actually is very much about the fact that even if we did something to the Jews, the Jews, in the form of Judeo-Communism, have done much more to a wrongdoing to us. And, in, for example, in the case of Poland, um, uh, this narrative, of course, is not the post-1989 uh, invention, and of course we can trace uh, the origins of that narrative back to 1945, or even early before the end of uh, communism, and Judeo-communism as an anti-Semitic trope is, uh, goes back to the late ni- to the 19th century, uh, its, its crystallization. But what we observe now, that this very often Judeo-Communism is being used uh, instrumentally to minimalize one's own uh, uh, crimes against the Jews. Could I just add a little bit to this? Yeah, Uh, please. In the form of instrumentalization. It has to be said that... uh, the way the Holocaust has been uh, presented and formulated in the West uh, has given actually a language and a way uh, to uh, bring attention to one's own suffering using Holocaust-type language and Holocaust-type imagery. So a very uh, classic example of that is a photograph of Bosnian political prisoners, which looks very much like a photograph of prisoners at Auschwitz. You didn't really have to say very much with it. The image says it all. Uh, and um, uh, people who have studied the development of uh, U- 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 Ukrainian, say, memory politics around the famine, uh, you can see that in the, in the diaspora in Canada and the United States, Ukrainians took a great interest in the famine precisely at the same time that the Holocaust was becoming more and more important in American public life. Um, uh, it also had to do with the fact that Ukrainians were being accused of war crimes in the middle of the 1980s, but uh, the language used, the, the kind of um, uh, goals that the Ukrainian uh, uh, diaspora set for itself were clearly inspired by the uh, uh, analysis of what they felt the Jews were doing in relation to the Holocaust. So they began collecting testimonies. Uh, they uh, uh, tried to get uh, the Holocaust declared a genocide by, by official bodies uh, in order to show that uh, they had the same kind of thing. So the Holocaust came in very handy there. And in fact, in the diaspora and in Ukraine, after it became independent, uh, there were a number of publications uh, which uh, simply were called uh, Ukrainian Holocaust, and they were about the famine. And when I and my daughter was doing research in Ukraine on the Holocaust, and uh, her um, people she interviewed often thought that she was going to talk to them about the famine, uh, because for them that was the that was the the, uh, the Holocaust. So this is another form I would say where 
uh, the form of the Holocaust is taken and it is used in the content for your own suffering. And, and as Ioana said, there's often a competitive edge in this. So there's a, a book, it's a very anti-Semitic book that was published in the Ukrainian uh, diaspora. It was called, Why is One Holocaust Worth More Than Other Holocausts? I think that captures perfectly uh, yep. that uh, competition. No, and this, of course, is a big a big issue for debate and discussion in the field of Holocaust studies, or sorry, genocide studies more generally, right? Is, is, yeah, so in Japan what, is a case where the... Yeah. Okay, so uh, 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 this has been a fascinating conversation, and I would love to continue it, but I know that I've taken a lot of your time. Um, so let me conclude the, the same way that I try to conclude most of these interviews, and I'll start with um, Joanna. Um, for people interested in going further, what would you recommend for them? What book or movie, um, recognizing that while we have listeners all across the world, the, probably the common language is English, what, what what should people go to the library and get this weekend? Uh, first and foremost, I would uh, recommend our book, The Reception of, of the Holocaust in Post-Communist <laughs> Europe. Um, but of course, there are many works that can be recommended to to readers and many films. There is, of course, one has to keep in mind that, as a matter of fact, in English language, there is only a small group of works. Uh, that deals with the problem that actually we also have uh, an enormous amount of works that actually are not so known that deals with these problems in in, lang- uh, in Polish and other languages. I mean, I would wish the, uh, that a small book that was written just after the Second World War by Ludwig Herring called Ślady Traces in, uh, in Polish, which is uh, devastating. It is a devastating critique of Polish behavior in, wa- in Warsaw that shows exactly how social collaboration uh, with the Nazis works, the unofficial collaboration, the mistreatment of uh, the Jewish fugitives trying to escape uh, the Warsaw Ghetto, uh, the level of denunciation, and also the treatment of the rescuers, that this kind of a book would be translated to English. There is a film that I believe that is available in English uh, that uh, was actually unnoticed also uh, in the broader uh, public sphere. Jeszcze tylko ten las, one more forest. Uh, that was uh, made in 1991 by uh, Polish filmmaker Jan Łomnicki that deals with uh, with a rescue with uh, of a Jewish girl from the Warsaw Ghetto. A rescue problem today in Poland is one of the central issues for the discussion about uh, the dark past also because uh, the, the whole nature of rescue 
becomes for the first time uh, historically analyzed and the typology of rescue. Historians are now very much engaged in creating a new typology of rescue that actually shows us that uh, not all the rescuers were dedicated rescuers, that there were rescuers for, uh, f- uh, um, who rescued only for profit and there were rescuers who turned into perpetrators of the former charges. Charges. So this film, Cotton Last, uh, shows the process of evolution of a rescuer, of a, a rescuer for profit who becomes a, a dedicated rescuer uh, uh, in a very complex way. A book that is available both in Polish and in English uh, that I would uh, highly recommend, Uh, it's the Method for Everyday Use. It is a collection of essays that deals with the cultural heritage, material heritage of Polish Jews today in Poland because no one not many people know that uh, the Jewish cemeteries, uh, graves, have been actually used uh, to build roads, uh, to build buildings, including churches. And, uh, of course, Poles are very, very sensitive when it comes to uh, the vandalization of Polish cemeteries. For example, the Lviv Eagle Cemetery. Uh, and uh, on, the other, on the other hand, actually, there is a lack of awareness that what happened with Jewish gravestones in, uh, uh, in Poland. In, so this book uh, that uh, includes lots of interesting photographs uh, showing the mistreatment, uh, mistreatment of Jewish cemeteries I think might be an uh, interesting uh, uh, aspect to explore, also uh, to explore further, because this is a part aspect that actually uh, activists in Poland, the so-called uh, second generation of Polish rescuers, those who are engaged today in uh, saving uh, salvaging the material culture of uh, pre-war Polish Jewish civilization uh, are doing. And John Paul, what about you? Well, I would I would recommend uh, two films that, uh, that deal with uh, very well with the memory of the Holocaust, um, but actually in France. So one is Night in Fog, which came out in 1955. It's considered usually the first Holocaust film although it does not mention Jews. Uh-huh. It never mentions any French collaboration. Um, and you get the impression that um, sort of there were resistors in the French nation and the Germans just put them down. And many of the pictures actually show the roundup of Jews at, a, at the Valdiv, which is a big bicycle uh, stadium in, uh, in, in, in Paris. Uh, so... Um, and, and actually, in this film originally, there was a picture of a silhouette of a French policeman being involved in the roundup, and the French government in 1955 had that removed. Okay, so this 
it's still a very powerful film and really, you know, excellent music, fantastic uh, 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 script. And then I would watch Sarah's Key, which came out in 2010. Uh-huh. Also uh, French. French and, and, and I think uh, uh, French in America, French and Canadian. Uh, and this shows the same events in the Valdiv, and this time makes a point that this was done by the Vichy government in collaboration. This was done by the French police. Um, so that shows the kind of road that's traveled in realizing uh, the, realizing the, 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 the true nature of the dark past. Now, mind you, I think Sarah's Key goes a bit overboard, sort of wallows in this, but I think that those two films taken together are a perfect example of how uh, uh, collective memory changes. And then as for Eastern Europe, I would recommend Jan Gross's book, Neighbors. Yeah. Short, dramatic, uh, deals with both events and memory of events. And uh, uh, that was a book that changed a lot of thinking on a lot of issues. And if I might inject, uh, Jan Grouse's book in some ways today is a template. It constitutes a template uh, on how to write on the difficult past on, uh, <clears throat> uh, pertaining to Jews. And, I, and uh, one thing that I want to say also in response to John Paul's recommendations, he might be very pleased because both films, uh, Night and Fog and Sarah's Key, I use with my students huh. in the course on the past that doesn't pass uh, here at Bristol University. Well, those both sound like wonderful recommendations. I've seen a couple of those movies, and of course, read John Gross's book, and I, I can add to their recommendations. So we all have our marching orders for the weekend. Uh, I don't know about where you all are, but it's here in Kansas. It's supposed to be cold and wet, and so people will be happy to spend some time in the house watching movies. But we have to cut that off now, uh, which kind of makes me sad. And so uh, here I'll just, again, suggest to uh, listeners that the book is well worth reading, and, and I encourage you to go out and, and, and get it and, and learn a little bit more. But for now, Joanna and John Paul, thank you so very much for being on the show. We appreciate your time. Um, we were glad to do it. Excellent. Um, and hopefully somewhere down the line we'll get a chance to talk again. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with John Paul Himka and Joanna Beata Michlik about their book, Bringing the Dark Past to Light, The Reception of the Holocaust in Post-Communist Europe. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll talk with Fatma Muge Gucek about her book, Denial of Violence, Ottoman Past, Turkish Present, and Collective Violence Against the Armenians, 1789-2009. to In the meantime, thanks for the download, and have a great month.